Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Miller. The mission of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics is to expand consciousness, stimulate thought, enhance your mental and physical health, and encourage community. Today, we have the distinct privilege of having a guest who is perhaps the foremost authority on several psychedelic medicines on our planet. Dr. Dennis McKenna is an ethnopharmacologist who has studied plant hallucinogens for over 40 years. Stay tuned. You're going to want to hear in detail everything that Dr. Dennis McKenna has to say on certain psychedelic medicines. But first, news and notes in psychology and medicine. The number of middle-aged men with prescriptions for testosterone is climbing rapidly, raising concerns that increasing numbers of men are <clears throat> abusing the powerful hormone to boost their libidos and feel younger. That's what researchers are reporting this week. Should we be surprised? Should we be surprised that young men are using testosterone? Why should we not be surprised? Well, you know, if you tell a bunch of young guys that if you take this medicine and it's going to build muscle, reduce body fat, and improve sex drive, do we really think they're going to wait until there's something wrong with them to take this medicine? Or are they going to go out and take this medicine? This study, the largest of testosterone prescribing patterns to date, involved nearly 11 million men. How do you track 11 million men? That sounds like a really big expense. And they showed a number of men who were taking the testosterone has tripled in about the last 10 years. I'm surprised it hasn't gotten to the point of almost everybody taking it. Remember what this, these drugs are supposed to do, build muscle, reduce body fat, and improve sex drive. It sounds like a wonder drug to me. How is it that everybody isn't taking it, and now there's concern that too many people are taking it, and maybe, in fact, there's going to be abuse? Well, look what happened with Viagra. Viagra and Cialis, Levetra, Optima, Muse, all these medicines that are supposedly for ED, erectile dysfunction, they came to be used as recreational drugs. But why not? If it's good without them, and this makes it even better, isn't it to be expected that young people are going to be taking these medicines? In fact, why young people? Isn't it to be expected that people of all age are going to be taking these medicines? Well, it says here that actually testosterone is not a drug. It's a, it's a natural hormone. All the more reason to check with your physician, do some reading on it. Why are, quote, they, unquote, making such a big deal about young people or people who are not suffering from, quote, ED, taking this medicine? I'm always a little suspicious when the government comes out and says, be careful of this, be careful of this, particularly because this, this is going to, build your muscle, reduce your body fat, and improve your sex drive. 
Check it out, folks. See what you think about testosterone. Maybe give me a call or shoot me an email sometime. Now, what about grapefruit? Grapefruit is an interesting little switch there from testosterone to grapefruit. Caught my attention. Um, For many people, breakfast isn't complete without the tangy taste of grapefruit. But according to Duke University Medical School, grapefruit harbors a dark secret. It contains a chemical that interacts with many drugs. In fact, grapefruit interacts with so many drugs that I'm not going to read the list right now, and I'm just going to tell you that 12 of the many drugs that grapefruit interacts with and causes concentrations which are much too high, 12 of these are routine drugs, namely they're they're prescribed quite a bit for cardiovascular disease, for blood pressure, and for cholesterol. So, folks, if you're regular grapefruit eaters and you're taking prescription medicine, either do the research yourselves or talk to your physician about possible interaction with the wonderful, wonderful fruit, grapefruit. Yes, it may be doing something that you don't want it to do. It can create a different kind of absorption and a different kind of metabolism. And the result of these uh, interactions could cause an increase in the actual drug you're taking that may lead to a serious adverse effect. Grapefruit, check it out. And let's see, last but not least for our news and notes today is an amazing study that was done on sunscreen. This study involved 900 white people, Caucasians, aged 22 to 55, in Australia, where intense sun exposure is a fact of life. Most of them had fair skin and nearly all burned in the sun. Here's what the researchers did. They tracked these people for four and a half years. They had half the people just do what they ordinarily did and nothing more. But they had the other half slather on, slather on is the words they used, sunscreen, SPF 15. And according to this research, SPF 15, which doesn't sound really high to me, I thought I was headed towards 50 and 70, 15 filters 92% of the sun's rays. What does that mean? It means someone who would normally burn in 10 minutes would burn in 150 minutes if they use the SPF 15. And what these people found after studying and getting these people to slather it on for four and a half years is that the people who slathered it on had fewer wrinkles, had fewer pieces of sagging skin, Yes, the, it, it, it's not that the slathering on reverses damage that's already done, but what the slathering on does is it protects the skin, and this is no longer considered snake oil. It's now something that has some scientific validity to it. So for those of you who are out in the sun, you want to get at least a 15 and maybe higher, and in the words of these researchers from Australia, slather it on on a daily basis. One of the researchers actually said that he was surprised that they actually got so many people, half the participants, to continuously slather this stuff on for four and a half years. There was no trouble getting the people who didn't use anything to continue doing uh, nothing, uh, which is what they had been doing. So, 
That's news and notes for today. And now on to our interview with Dr. Dennis McKenna. I'm going to be playing a, um, a tape as a way of introducing uh, Dr. McKenna in just a moment here. But first, I'm going to uh, uh, read to you uh, some, of his, some of his credentials. Uh, he has been focusing on ethnopharmacology and plant hallucinogens for decades. Dr. McKenna received his doctorate in 1984, that's what, uh, almost 30 years ago, from the University of British Columbia, where his doctoral research focused on ethnopharmacological investigations of the botany, chemistry, and pharmacology of ayahuasca. Remember, ayahuasca is a, uh, a plant. It comes from a plant in the northwest Amazon. He's done a lot of work down there. Dr. McKenna received postdoctoral research fellowships in the Laboratory of Clinical Pharmacology at the National Institute of Mental Health and also at the Department of Neurology at Stanford University. He went on and on uh, in his illustrious career. He's been an adjunct clinical professor at um, the Center for Spirituality and Healing at the University of Minnesota since 2001. I'm going on and on with his credentials because it's important for you to have his credentials in mind, his, his, his luminous credentials in mind, as you listen to the following uh, voice tape uh, of one of his lectures. And here it is. I'm very hopeful that uh, years to really change the, the mindset of, uh, uh, of vast numbers of people, and, and not only large numbers, but also people who are in a position to change things, uh, you know, that's one thing psychedelics can do, they need to change hearts and minds, and they're the best tool we have for that right now. There you have the clip, welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, Dennis. Thank you, Richard. It's a pleasure to be there, be here. Um, thank you for inviting me. You know, in the 1960s, Dennis, I was uh, teaching at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor, and then I, I spent some time teaching at Stanford University. And the only place up after Michigan and Stanford would have been Harvard. And then something happened that changed the course of my academic career and actually changed the course of my life, which is that... Doctors Timothy Leary and Richard Alpert were fired from Harvard. And they were fired for uh, many reasons, but one of them that uh, came to me while I was a young teacher was that they were fired for doing research into psychedelic medicine, uh, psilocybin, or psilocybin, uh, as you will, uh, research in Massachusetts. And when they got fired... I had the realization that my dream of being a university professor and having job security just evaporated. <laughs> I realized that at any time that I might be fired, I didn't know anything about these psychedelic medicines that, that these colleagues at Harvard were, were studying. I didn't know anything about them. But what I did know is that they were professors at Harvard and they were doing research and they were fired. And I thought, my gosh, you know, that could happen to me. Maybe I'm going to want to do research into hypnosis someday. Is, or, or maybe religion. 
or maybe politics, or where might I step my foot with this, you know, my, my, my curious attitude that I had, and, and, and get myself fired. And, and virtually, that was the end of my, uh, of my academic career. Here we are, 50 years later, and I run into another professor, another highly credentialed scientist, and we listen to this clip, and you seem to be beating the drum for the importance of psychedelic medicine. Tell us where you're coming from, please. And we've got 45 minutes for you to beat this drum, and I want to know where you're coming from and why you're coming from this place 50 years later. All right. Well, uh, great introduction. I, uh, you know, I, I'll beat the drum as well as I can, but I, I don't want to be seen as a you know, just a uh, sort of mindless advocate of psychedelics. And I think that's one of the things that got Timothy Leary and Richard Alpert and his colleagues into trouble. Um, and I don't really blame them. I think that at the time these substances were new, it, they, they sort of erupted into our society without any tradition, without any context. And uh, it scared a lot of people. And, uh, you know, when the institution, institutions are very concerned with, with uh, guarding their reputations and they don't like boat rockers. And uh, certainly Timothy Leary and, and his colleagues were boat rockers. And I think that they themselves didn't really have a background to understand what they were getting into. And so in some ways... It 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 uh, you know it crossed over from science and medical research into politics, and it was a very turbulent time in the '60s. Social change, all of those things were going on. So, in a certain sense, I, I don't blame them. I think that they they stumbled into this in a certain way, and and it was also a point a time in society when. It, change was inevitable, and certainly LSD, I think LSD more than uh, any of these other substances, just came at a certain time when society was undergoing change. And if it hadn't been Timothy Leary, it would have been someone else. Um, the problem is the unfortunate consequence of their involvement was that I, I really think that it set psychedelic research back probably many years uh, because of these social issues and, and Timothy Leary kind of being very public, very visible, telling everyone they should turn on, tune in, drop out. Possibly so, but it was not a message that the, uh, you know, that the powers that be wanted to hear. And so he was censored. Um, in my case, I'm a little bit freer because I don't have a tenured position, so I don't have to defend it. I've always been, in some ways, I've managed to do this work. I've worked with various institutions, such as NIH and so on, but never really have, uh, you know, I mean, I have credentials, but I've never really had uh, some kind of high-level academic positions that I have to defend. So I'm more or less free to say what I want. And uh, so that's part of my own dynamic. It's, you know, I've never really 
you know, the, the institution I work for right now, the Center for Spirituality and Healing, which is not a New Age cult. It just sounds like one. It's actually the alternative complementary medicine program at the University of Minnesota. They are exploring all sorts of modalities uh, for healing, and they're not exactly advocating psychedelics, but they're certainly uh, open to the idea that psychedelics are uh, one approach to, uh, you know, one approach to a healing modality that in many societies is revered and accepted and has a long tradition. Our society is trying to reinvent or rediscover that tradition and see how do these substances fit into our own culture, our own practice of medicine, and indeed our own spirituality. Well, Dennis, uh, let, let, let me say this. Sure. Perhaps, perhaps Leary and Albert were so much on the edge of, of new stuff that they perhaps didn't know what they were getting into. Uh But if you can step back with me and look at their situation, 50 years later, your situation, there are similarities in that you're highly educated people. You're trained in science, regardless of whether you want to take a political look at, at, at Leary and what he did and Albert or not. The fact is their credentials stood for themselves. They wouldn't have gotten their position at Harvard unless they were on a track at a right. very high level, unless right. they were highly educated and unless they had published. Leary, we know, had already published a, a well-thought-of book on personality uh-huh. uh, before this all began. And standing back from it, you know, looking at these two men at Harvard, looking at Dennis McKenna, if you can stand back from yourself just a little bit, you're, you're, you're a highly educated person who has been doing research in ethnopharmacology and neuroscience for decades. And so from that perspective, if you put aside the political and the irrational and, and the Harry Anslingers going back to 1937 and, and warning us about you know, the craziness of marijuana, if you can put all that aside and say, what are these scientists, this Leary, the Albert, this Dennis McKenna, what are they telling us? They're, they're, they're bringing this to us for a reason. That, that these are not mindless people, and these are not you know, wild, wild people in the streets. These are not drug addicts. These are highly credentialed scientists. Right, and, and I, I think that message is getting through now, finally. I mean, there was a, in society at the time, no one knew anything about these substances. There was a sort of, uh, you know, knee-jerk reaction against it. And when someone was promoting it and suggesting that, you know, it was a catalyst for social change, which it certainly was, you know, but but there was a knee-jerk, uh, you know, reaction on the part of society and the those who like to sort of uh, create the memes uh, of of mass consciousness. This was considered very threatening. Yes, well, and I, I realize that. Well, I realize it, in your own book you talk about it. Here's a quote from your book where you say your own father's response was that he considered Berkeley, the University of California, Berkeley, quote, to be the epicenter of degeneracy that was sweeping <laughs> the younger generation. That was your dad speaking. That was pretty much his take on it. Yeah. Yet at the same time, because my brother was so insistent on going to Berkeley, he let him go to Berkeley, and yeah, he was right. He was right in the middle of it, and my dad wasn't wasn't very happy about that. But what could you do? He was, 
you know, he was a very uh, persistent and rebellious young man, and he was going to do what he wanted. But I think, I think our society has evolved in the 40 years since. I mean, the hysteria that led to sort of the blanket banning of all these substances, uh, you know, has now died down quite a bit, and people are able to step back and take a second or third or more sober look at these things and say, you know, maybe we were a little hasty because there are so many reports and so much evidence now that in some ways these substances are very uh, beneficial, can be in the right context, used in a responsible way, they can be very beneficial to people's spiritual experiences and also on the, you know, on the, on the front of mental illness, they can help with things like PTSD, alcoholism, substance abuse, even obsessive-compulsive disorder, and these sorts of things. So now, although officially these things still are classified as Schedule One, meaning they're dangerous and they have no possible medical application, but the reality is now that the government, you know, the, the, the agency that permits or not these kinds of studies to go forward, which is the FDA, uh, they really do base their decisions on scientific, you know, uh, scientific criteria. So very highly credentialed investigators with good study designs can get those studies approved by the FDA. And this has happened. Uh, You know, this is happening right now. There are a number of studies in progress using psilocybin, primarily psilocybin, and also MDMA, which is very promising for PTSD. These studies are in progress. There have been studies. So what's happening is that there's accumulating a body of good, solid scientific research. It's no longer necessarily marginalized. The government is not funding it yet, but there's interest, uh, particularly for PTSD, for example. I mean, the one of the nonprofit organizations that's working on this, MAPS, uh, is in discussions with the Pentagon to discuss experimentally using MDMA to treat veterans who come back from Iraq and Afghanistan with PTSD. If that happens and if that can be shown that it's effective, I think it's going to turn the it's it's going to further turn it around. Similarly, you mean if, if uh, you're talking about if, if uh, Rick Doblin's meetings with the Pentagon is uh, if they're effective and if they the fa- if the Pentagon itself decides to fund. So, by the way, Rick was on yeah. this very program right before he went to have that meeting with the Pentagon, and I'm okay. I'm looking so, forward to hearing the results. Right. So your listeners are familiar with this. And, oh yes. Uh, he's getting a very receptive hearing, and he's not. Actually, at this point, the last time I spoke with him, he's not asking the Pentagon to fund a study. He is asking the Pentagon to let them fund a study using veterans, let MAPS fund a study using veterans, evaluate the outcome, and then if the outcome is positive, then fund a study, fund a much bigger study with uh, several thousand vets in you know multiple uh, medical centers and all that. That's the way this process goes of, uh, you know, developing a drug to get eventually into the clinic. So, you know, the fact that he can even go to the Pentagon and talk to the top people in the Defense Department and get a respectful and uh, open response from them, 
that tells you right there how much the how much the atmosphere has changed, how much the you know the conversation about these substances has changed. Uh, so, in that sense, in that sense, uh, you have hope. Because I, I do. I you have do. a lot of hope. You have a lot of hope because in some areas, you know, frankly, uh, Dennis, in some areas of of your book, you're sounding like uh, you're concerned about us going into. Uh, let me quote where you say, uh, we face the prospect of drowning in our own waste, even as, even as many deny that what is piling up around us is waste. And, and another place, you, you mentioned that uh, you feel that uh, 2011 has left deep scars, quote, on the nation, if not much of the world, and has apparently precipitated a long descent into a very dark age. Well, I, you know... Yeah. Let's hear what you have to say, honestly, well, about one of, one of uh, this long descent. Me, you know, uh, uh, once one of my students asked me something that stuck with me. She said, "Are are you a pessimist?" Mm-hmm. And I actually, I'm an optimist, but I'm a worried optimist. And you know, our species, our planet, uh, our society does face some very serious challenges over the next 50 years. And I think we are in a bottleneck where the decisions we make now are going to impact whether, really, whether we're going to maintain uh, a, a planet that can be, you know, hospitable to life. I mean, it is that serious. And I think that's a very important um area where these medicines are very important. They may well be the, because what ha- what needs to happen is people need to wake up. And, uh, you know, they need to wake up to what's happening and not only wake up, but then, you know, uh, act on that perception. And one of the messages, one of the teachings, if you will, that people often come away with from psychedelics and I would venture to say, especially from ayahuasca, is the realization that, you know, we are part of nature. We're not in control of nature. We need to nurture our planet, and we need to nurture the environment. People come away with this very strong sort of ecological message and uh, this understanding that our planet is in peril that we have a lot to do with, uh, you know, we have had a lot to do with creating the posi- the situation that's destabilizing all these homeostatic mechanisms that keep uh, keep things in a in a uh, you know habitable per- within habitable parameters. We've got to change. We've got to wake up. And this is really a consistent message. It's not just me. I, I get this message all the time. But many people come away with that understanding that, uh, you know, this, and, and so, you know, I, I mean, it's not a scientific speculation. If I could step out of the scientific mode for a minute, I, I have speculated that in some ways this is a message that is coming through ayahuasca and through these plant medicine teachers, which indigenous cultures have always recognized that these are, these are teachers. They regard them as intelligences. And in a certain sense, I think there's merit to that perception that the message that's coming from the from the biospheric community, if you will, is you monkeys have got to wake up because you're screwing everything up. And, you know, 
I think that's an important message because people's lives do change. And, uh, you know, what's important is to not only propagate that message, but make sure that the right people get that message in a certain sense, the people that are in a position to change things on a global geopolitical scale. So, you know, it's kind of a race between are we going to wake up in time to make the changes that will arrest this sort of, you know, precipitous plunge into into chaos and in environmental in environmental degradation, you know, uh, which which anyway, I guess I've said enough there. I think well, I made my point. I I think so. I think I, I want to continue a bit. By the way, you the voice you were just listening to is the voice of Dr. Dennis McKenna. We're talking about his career in uh, ethnopharmacology for over 40 years. His most recent book, The Brotherhood of the Screaming Abyss, is about his relationship with his brother, Terence McKenna, a, a cultural icon in the psychedelic community that many of you have heard of. You're listening to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, by the way. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Miller. Um, we're going to go on and ask you some more questions here because... I can see why your student, you know, asked you if you're a pessimist when you're talking about the prospect of drowning in, in, our, in our own waste. And, and I want to uh, read just one more quote here, Dennis, from your book where you say, quote, we confront an era of dwindling resources, ever more repressive political systems, the rising hegemony of know-nothing fundamentalism and the accelerating contamination of our planet as we lurch forward towards a tipping point that could destabilize the homeostatic feedback mechanisms that have kept Earth hospitable to life for the last 3.9 billion years. Mm-hmm. That's what you're talking about, this kind of choice point. And you're, if I understand you, please correct me if I'm off here, you're saying that one tool that is available to us for waking up, if you will, or recognizing the danger that we're doing to ourselves. One of the many tools that's available is this tool that is referred to as psychedelic medicine. Is that correct? That's exactly right. If that be the case, then... These are catalysts to conscious evolution in a certain sense. And, you know, we as a species are faced with critical decisions in the next 50 years. It's already, it's almost too late to destabilize some of these things. We have to make those decisions from a position of wisdom and clarity and insight. That's what's lacking. You know, our, our cleverness has far exceeded our wisdom. I mean, and that's why, you know, we uh, are in control of forces, uh, technologies, and so on that can seriously impact the planet and ourselves, we have, for example, atomic energy and all these things, genetic engineering and all of these marvelous technologies, which are not bad. I don't believe that any technology is bad. I think that, I think that moral qualities come out of human behavior. What we have to bring to the table is an, a, a wisdom in how we're going to utilize these these technologies that is equivalent to our cleverness the the cleverness that we've that we've evidenced in inventing and developing these technologies because they're not going away right you cannot ban these things you have to learn how to use them in a way that 
enhances life and doesn't destroy life. That's right. The same argument could be said with psychedelics. You know, you know, this is one of the things that's hopeful. We're learning. We're learning how to use these things in a way that enhances people's lives, that minimizes their dangers. You know, Leary and Alpert and, and those folks, they did have it right when they emphasized the importance of set and setting. We're now learning that these are the parameters you have to uh, you have to orchestrate, you have to manipulate manipulate in order for people to get the maximum benefit from psychedelics and the minimal harm uh, from them, if there is harm. Well, that's a question that we need to look at together, and that is, how do we separate the medicinal from the recreational, from the abusive? With, mm-hmm. with, with so many medicines, there, that, that is an, a, a question for us. That we don't have a problem with people, to, you know, using uh, amoxicillin as a recreational drug because there's no uh, you know, recreational aspect to it, and certainly right. we don't hear about people get you know abusing these various say uh, antibiotics. But right. when it comes to mind-altering substances, mm-hmm. there are many forks in the road. They can be used for medicine, they can be used for recreational, and they can be used for uh, abuse. You heard me talking in News and Notes about testosterone. Now, here's yeah. a medicine that's, that is used for people who have uh, low testosterone, and it's been used for people with, uh, with prostate cancer. Uh, I mean, it's, it's not used for people, rather, with prostate cancer because it enhances that. Mm-hmm. So you have to be careful there. But, but then we're telling young people, hey, it builds muscle, it decreases fat, and it increases your libido. And then we wonder why they're using it, right? Because it's a medicine that can go both ways. Same with Viagra. It can be for erectile dysfunction or it can be for pure pleasure. Right. The same yeah, is true, I, isn't it, with the, with the psychedelic medicines? What do we do there, Dennis? Well, very much so. I thought your remarks, uh, you know, uh, in the news and notes was, was very interesting because you did identify w- one of the conundrums with some of these compounds like Viagra, like testosterone, I would venture to say uh, other, another class is these cognition enhancers that are coming on, ProVigil and that sort of thing. And it really raises uh, a lot of questions about, you know, uh, and, and especially with respect to psychedelics uh, and the medical applications of these substances that are not necessarily psychedelics, like cognition enhancers. If cognition enhancer can make you smarter, more productive, a better, you know, help you think, you don't have to be sick to benefit from it. You, you don't have to have a deficit uh, you know, in mental function, uh, a normal quote-unquote person can benefit from something like that. And I think psychedelics and, uh, you know, these uh, Viagra-type substances, all of that does raise the question of, you know, are, are the, you know, unless you're dysfunctional or deficient in some function, should you be allowed to have access to those substances, and who gets to decide? And, uh, and I, who I gets to is, decide? Great yeah. question. And the question is, how do you, again, approach these? You can say, well, I mean, for example, there's an abundance of studies and many examples that show that psychedelics can enhance creativity. And, you know, there's a lot of anecdotal information. Steve Jobs, Carrie Mullis, 
Francis Crick, all these uh, high-level people have cool. now been quite out front about the benefits that they've gotten uh, from LSD primarily in their inventions and their insights. Why shouldn't people have access to that kind of ability? If, if you could step out of your conceptual box for a few hours and have a new understanding of a problem that you're working on, isn't that a tool that humanity should uh, should have access to to enhance quality of life and relieve human suffering? I mean, I, th- I think this conversation, you know, we're not going to resolve it in the few minutes that we have, but I think this conversation is really quite critical um, to, again, the decisions that we have to make, how do we apply wisdom and clarity and insight to the tools that we've invented. And I think psychedelics, you know, fall very much into that category. And we didn't invent them, but we invent, we discovered them. But you know what I'm saying. How do we use those things? And, you know, on the other side of this coin, uh, you know, and something that's rarely articulated and not really talked about in biomedicine is that, you know, the current state of psychiatry and mental health treatment is, quite frankly, a joke, you know, except that it's not funny. Um, You know, people are not treated. They are given psychopharmaceuticals, most of which are far more dangerous than psychedelics, don't work by and large, and uh, treat the symptoms. They don't really help people deal with the issues that, you know, bring them to the doctor in the first place. The doctor prescribes the antidepressant and gets them out of the door. That's partly because the doctors, as much as anyone else, the physicians are trapped in this model of uh, biomedicine that we have to live in. But what it's resulted in, essentially, you know, biomedicine regards personality or people's individual mental quirks as something that uh, should be chemically engineered, you know, so that everybody is on antidepressants, everybody's on Adderall or whatever. Anyone who falls outside a certain, you know, statistical um, profile is, is uh, you know, is identified as aberrant in some way and in need of medication. Usually, medication that you must take all for the rest of your life. That's right, like an annuity to the pharmaceutical companies. I want yeah. to just remind. This is one reason why psychedelics are very threatening to the pharmaceutical companies, and they're not going to develop them because there's no money to be made. These are substances you take on rare occasions, maybe only two or three times in your life. Well, that's not a good business model. No, that's not a good business model. I want to remind our listeners that the person that you're listening to, Dr. Dennis McKenna, an ethnopharmacologist, a neuroscientist with 40 years of experience, one of the most prominent people in the United States in his field, is telling us, and you heard him say, that the present state of psychiatry is a joke. It's just a joke. He has also told us in his book that these same medicines that he is saying offer hope to us to awake from our great sleep uh, on our planet, that these very same medicines can lead us down the primrose path, in his quote, to psychedelic perdition. 
So it's not as if he's beating the drum and saying all of us should go out and take these things, but he is telling us that carefully chosen, these are tools that could change the direction of the entire planet. And now getting back to what we were talking about here, um, you said that you know our cleverness has exceeded our wisdom. And and we need to get wise about the use of these medicines and, and how we might you know, use them to wake us up from our great sleep. Uh-huh. At the same time, you're concerned that if we don't wake up from this sleep, we're, we're, we're drowning, right? We're drowning in our own waste. Right. I mean, I think if we don't wake up, we are doomed, you know. Um, I mean, in, in some way, you know, on some cosmic scale the assessment of intelligence in a in a species is you know did they maintain did they figure out sustainability did they did they take care of their ecosystem if they came out of a planetary ecosystem i mean i, I can envision it's kind of a uh, you know a dark humor kind of thing but i can you know 500 years from now the aliens come and land and look around and see the mess that we've made and say well this was no intelligent species you know they drowned in their own um they, i guess i can't say it on the radio but you know what i'm saying i know they drowned in their own waste we're going to take another call here let's see what our listener has to say welcome to mind body health and politics you're on the air yes good morning dr miller and dr uh, I'm interested in how actually the hallucinogens help treat the cause and not just the symptoms as do mainstream jug, drugs of the typical thing as you were talking about. How do hallucinogens actually treat the causes? Is it a matter of do they make bodily changes, hormonal changes, or is it a matter of an introduction to a different perspective? I think it's complex. I think that there are there are bodily changes. There are changes in neurochemistries, upregulations and downregulations uh, of neurotransmitter systems and all that. But they can't be uh, separated or divorced from the behavioral changes. I think that you know, in a to summarize, I think that what what these things do in the therapeutic sense is they create windows of opportunity to change behavior. They let you step out of your habitual, uh, you know, uh, habits, your habitual behavior with respect, for example, to an addictive substance. You know, they let you step back from that and say, hey, maybe I need to change my relationship to this to this substance, either give it up or modify how I used it. I mean, there's some interesting things going on right now. Um, I mean, I could go on it, but there's some interesting things going on right now using psilocybin in a study at Johns Hopkins for smoking cessation. And as you know, nicotine is one of the most addictive, probably the most addictive drug that we have to deal with. And this is a very small pilot study that's going on. I think there's only 12 subjects right now, but so far every person in that study that, and these are long-term smokers, three, four packs a day, every person that went through that protocol has, has stopped smoking. And, and, you know, six months down the line, they're still not smoking. That, there's no other treatment that, uh, you know, that comes up with those kinds of spectacular results. And partly it's that it changes your neurochemistry uh, and it also, but it also changes your behavior, your habituation, if it, if you will. 
we've also seen this with ayahuasca. Uh, you know, that's another good example. Um, you know, we did this study on ayahuasca with one of these Brazilian churches, the, the UDV, in the early 90s, and we found that in our subjects, all the people, when they joined the church, had alcohol or drug abuse problems, and they all were able to overcome those. And it was it was a result of their initial experiences, where they basically had profound, you know, cathartic experiences, and they they resolved to change, and they were able to change as long as the, you know, in the context of this supportive religious community. But we also found a change in uh, serotonin uh, metabolism and the way serotonin was produced and regulated. So it's the it's the linking of these two things. The psychological and the, the physiological. psychological and the neurochemical, yeah. if you will. We're going yeah. to take another call here, Dennis. Uh, by the way, folks, the telephone number here is 707-937-5103. 707-937-5103 if you have a, ca- a question for Dr. McKenna. Let's take that call, Michael. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. You're on the air. Good morning, Dr. Miller. This is Mystery. Hi, Mystery. How are you? I'm well. Good morning. Interview is very interesting. Thank you. What's your question for Dr. Yeah. McKenna? Uh, I think we did better when we were at World War II time when everyone was uh, not lazy and uh, replanting gardens and on the brink of doing all these uh, things. Uh, I studied uh, theory and Dr. Richard Alpert myself and uh-huh. I don't know what happened to them there at Harvard, but I feel like this is going to take so long to... What are the names of these drugs? Uh, how can we get them? We're going to go to jail if we try them. What, what do you say to that, uh, Dennis? That it, it Basically, your question is it's going to take too long? She, and she's also wanting to know how do you get a hold of these medicines since they're illegal. <laughs> I don't know how you can possibly uh, well, answer that. <laughs> I can't really advise you how to do that. You you have to sign up in for one of these clinical studies, or you can, in this country right now, you can join a church, you can join the UDV. Um, they actually have, by a Supreme Court ruling, the the um, you know permission to use ayahuasca as a sacrament. Uh, as a result of a Supreme Court decision in their favor under the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, uh, so that's a way so you that's can you one can possible join way. the church. I mean, the thing is, these things are not uh, you know that rare. You can find sources of them, but yes, of course, I'm not gonna. No, you can't. <laughs> and we all know that. I've got an email here that I want to ask you about. It. You're talking about medicines for uh, enhancing cognitive functioning. Uh, you mentioned uh, ProVigil, and there's another one now, NuVigil. What can you tell us about ProVigil and NuVigil, Doctor McKenna? Well, I can't give you the. Uh I can't give you the, uh, you know, the pharmacology. In fact, the pharmacology is not totally understood of these new compounds. But these are, these are uh, being looked at kind of as alternatives or uh, to uh, to stimulants like Adderall, which is basically dextroamphetamine. There's there's nothing new about Adderall, you know. Um, but the cognitive enhancers, ProVigil, work by a slightly different mechanism, and uh, they're not. As you know, they're not as prone to addiction as the amphetamines, and they do uh, enhance attention, and they basically help people um, with uh, with cognitive functions. So, 
you know, uh, uh, and it may be that basically, in some ways, basically they're stimulants, you know. Uh, they help people be more productive, more focused on what they're doing, perhaps think better. Um, that's uh, about what I know. Uh-huh. I, I, Side effects? For, you, uh, narcolepsy, the medical use is to yes. help people uh, on, uh, with narcolepsy or people who... Um, who uh, do shift work, who work at night, help people stay awake. These other effects, these are off-label applications, and this is, this is at the crux of the, of the question. These are, you know, can be used to take normal people and help them function better. Yeah, now, whether they should be, that's the ethical dilemma. Should that be allowed? I mean, for example, if I am working in a company and my colleague in the next cubicle is using ProVigil, you know, he or she gets the promotion and I don't because I choose not to use it. Is that good? Is that an ethic? You know, that, that's an ethical dilemma. It is, but it's also one that's not very stoppable, is it? Not very stoppable. That's right. The telephone number here is 707-937-1103. Should you want to call in, please do ask a question of, uh, of Dr. McKenna. Um, in one of your uh, in one of your quotes, you say that uh, you've taken DMT and you describe DMT uh, as a young man, and then you describe taking DMT maybe thirty years later, and you're wondering in your book as you're talking about the two experiences, you're wondering whether the whether the man has changed, the, the medicine has changed, or what has changed, but you notice that it doesn't, uh, the effect is not the same as it used to be. Right. Well, I don't think the medicine's changed. <laughs> but I certainly think the man has changed. And uh, I think that, uh, you know, DMT is, you know, it's a very profound, very short-acting psychedelic. And certainly, I'd have to say for my brother and myself, it was DMT that got us into all this in the first place because it was just amazing. Uh, and But having said that, it was hard to bring much back from that place. It was literally like going into a different dimension or a different reality for a few minutes, which, of course, on the, on the drug, it seemed much longer than that. It seemed like an eternity. But you, you come back out of it, and you get back down to baseline, and you can't do much more than say, oh, my God, oh, my God, what was that? So you can't really bring a whole lot out of it. And, and that's one of the uh, virtues of ayahuasca. Ayahuasca is DMT, but it's DMT that's orally activated so that the experience is, uh, you know, four hours instead of 15 minutes. So there's a chance to actually sort of integrate more, to bring more, to learn more, and remember more when you come back. And, uh, you know, so I'm still, ayahuasca is still one of my primary plant teachers, I would say. But DMT, uh, when I took it recently, um, just I felt like when I was writing the book I needed to touch bases with it. It was still profound, but but it seemed, I don't know if the term is less profound or less freighted with gnosis, 
than ayahuasca. And it may be because in the interim I, you know, sort of formed a relationship with ayahuasca and I don't rely on DMT so much. But I, I think DMT is very valuable. I think it's something that, you know, if people are interested in the psychedelic experience, it has to be on your map. You know, it, you have to put that data point in your map because in some ways it's an important benchmark of the psychedelic experience. You could say it's almost quintessentially the, the quintessential psychedelic um, when for I was, when other I was t- reasons besides the fact, besides the experience, the fact that it's so close to serotonin that it's a, it's a neurotransmitter that occurs in the human brain and really all over nature. Uh, so you must take it. I, when I was teaching in the '60s at the University of Michigan, a student came over to me after class and said, "You know, you seem like an interesting guy. I'd like to invite you over to my house, and I want to show you something." So I went over to his house, and he had this uh, this uh, medicine that he uh, or drug or whatever he wants to call it that he called that he said was DMT. And he said, "I'd like you to try this." And I said, "How do you do it?" And he says, "You smoke it." And I took a puff of it and. Um, and I went into hyperspace, and um, and uh-huh. I came and, and I came back, and I and I said, um, I'd like to try that again. And I took it again, and I, I again went out into hyperspace. Uh-huh. And then I I came back. I looked at him, and I said, you know, I never thought I would ever become a drug addict, but I think I've just become a drug addict because I want to take this again and again and again. I want to take it again right now. And so he gave it to me again, and again I went out into hyperspace. And this time when I was out there, and I can remember it like it was yesterday, when it was almost 40, 50 years ago, I was way out in hyperspace and I saw this big red sign, and it literally said, caution, caution, caution. It was, it was, it was actually, I saw the word, C-A-U-T-I-O-N, big red uh-huh. sign. And uh-huh. then I heard this voice, and the voice said to me, be careful, Richard. Anything that takes you so far so fast is to be deeply respected. Uh-huh. And I came back and he said, do you want some more? And I said, no, thank you. I think I've had enough. Right. And that right. was it. It was the most, one of the most you know, significant, amazing experiences in my life to actually you know, see, have, hear a voice and a sign saying caution. Well, do we, have t- we don't have time for any more message. We have to wrap this up here, Dennis. So please uh, join me again in exactly two weeks at 9 o'clock Pacific Standard Time. Until then, this is Dr. Richard Miller reminding you that good health is worth fighting for and it's essential for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. 